that I bought a good deal. So I bought, you know, the ugliest house in the nicest neighborhood. And I paid a lot of attention to what houses like in the neighborhood had done to be worth more. So I now know that that's called like comparables. And I was looking at comps. Our ever-changing world calls upon the most courageous, resilient, and relentless of us to face its most extraordinary challenges. To help you embark on this journey, we present the Impactful Coaching Podcast, your oasis for inspiration and a beacon to spark the fires of greatness within you. I'm Joseph. I will be your ally in this journey to empower your potential. Join us each week as we dive deep into the heart of ambition, drive, and success to unravel compelling stories of daring leaders who dreamed, struggled, and achieved victory. Our journey begins now. How is everybody doing today? My name is Joseph, and this is the Impactful Coaching Podcast. Just to deal with the tiniest bit of housekeeping known to man, uh, I had moved into a new place, and so there I am cleaning up a lot of the smaller details, such as getting internet past 2004. Yes, I'm on a DSL line right now. And boy, are there things that I don't miss about 2004. I'm here today with Sarah D. Weaver. Sarah, you do a number of things, but the main thing that brings you to our show today is your work in the real estate sector, which is something that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet on the program. And that is, by the way, one thing that I really starting to appreciate about being media in the coaching space is because, I mean, there's not much of a limitation to what people can be coached on, whether it's relationships or, or profession or um, investment and property, uh, anxiety, mental issues. We, we we cover it all. And so that's a great thing for me to be thankful for. Sarah, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? Yeah, really good. Really excited to be on here. Uh, the coaching piece of my business, I think, is like my one true love. And the real estate is the vehicle. It's what pays the bills. And so I'm excited to be kind of talking about both of them today. Absolutely. So before we dive into any of that, one thing that I had seen from your online profile is that you definitely prioritize travel to the, they call it adventure travel, which I haven't heard that specific term yet. So I, I, I did this for like the first six episodes and then I said, okay, you know what, maybe I shouldn't make a thing out of this. Well, I'm bringing it back, everybody. Can What was a, a trip or two that you've had lately that really resonated with you? And then I got a follow-up that I think you're going to really like, so we'll get to that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the mini businesses that I run is called Invested Adventures, where I take real estate investors on epic adventures around the world. And a lot of people ask why. Well, I love travel. And people tend to want to talk about travel. Like you mentioned, you checked me out online and most people see, wow, this girl travels a lot. And to my surprise, that's what most people wanted to talk about. I put myself out there as a real estate investing coach. And once people have enough investments that they have either some or a lot of disposable income, they're like, okay, I want to travel like you. And so I found a way to take real estate investors on really kick-ass trips all around the world. And it's a business expense mm -hmm. because we're putting real estate investors in the same room. We talk about financing and strategy and tax, you know, and all, all sorts of things related to real estate investing, but we do it in epic places. So one incredible trip that we did this year was we went to Tanzania in Africa and we did a nine day safari followed by an eight day hike of the tallest mountain in Africa, Mount Kilimanjaro. Was there any 
transformative takeaways or resonances that you or anybody of the group had uh, come away with aside from the the physical and the visual so like I, i'm curious about the spiritual side of it what did people feel like they had reevaluated about their lives Absolutely. Safari was, I think, really surprising to me that that was such like a moving experience. I wouldn't necessarily say that I like knew a lot about animals and I'm not a monster. Of course, I like animals, Um, but it wasn't like I, you know, I'm not I don't know a bunch of facts about elephants or giraffes, but seeing animals in their habitat and we had the experience of seeing like a cheetah like hunt its prey and take down an impala and bring it back to its babies. We had just missed the kill of a buffalo and we caught the like lion shouting out to the lioness. And there were three mama lions and like 10 baby cubs. And I'm doing like, I'm not even close to doing it justice of how beautiful these moments were. And I think that for me and a lot of my clients, it was like, oh, Like we spend so much time worrying about things like Mm -hmm. just earlier at breakfast, someone's trying to figure out how to like take care of a large tax bill. We had a CPA on the group with us. So we're talking tax strategy before 9 a.m. And I think when you're standing there in the safari vehicle and you look over and this like 49 year old man has transformed into like a 12 year old because he's so excited it gives you permission to be really vulnerable and be equally excited because it's the coolest thing you've ever seen happening in front of your eyes. And you haven't thought about your phone. You haven't thought about your business. You haven't thought about your marriage issues or your weight issues or your anxiety because you're so present in that moment. Okay. Now for the follow-up side of this, um, and this is the first that I don't typically ask, but what has been a trip or some excursion that maybe didn't live up to the hype. Like it was was bigged up and then we get, (laughs) we get there and you realize, Oh, wait a minute. It's just a cardboard cutout. (laughs) Oh man. That's a great question. I mean, travel related. I can think of so many things and, and Instagram has kind of ruined Mm. some places. I'll use Bali as an example. Now people don't come at me. Bali is amazing. However, Instagram influencers have ruined, ruined some experiences in Bali because what used to be a hike that you would do, and maybe sure, there would be people at the summit. That's normal. You take your turn taking a photo, but now it's turned into a line where you are waiting for like an Instagram influencer to have like a model shoot. And then also your photos are never going to look as good as her photos on Instagram. And so when you get to some of these places, you're like, oh, that is not what I expected. So that happened a lot in Bali, probably all over Southeast Asia, actually, which is why I'm so glad I backpacked Southeast Asia in 2013, way before I had Instagram or cared about my Instagram, I should say. And then the other thing that I think is probably one of the world's like most disappointing attractions is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Uh, I think you think it's like going to be so cool and you get there and you're like, it's kind of small and sure it's kind of leaning, but there's just a mob of Instagrammers taking photos. Right. Right. It's, it's somewhat of a stock premise, but everyone is standing at that point where it looks like they're pushing it over. Exactly. And you don't look cool, by the way, like all the beside behind the scenes. I'm like, you look lame. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I guess if I I were there, I would, I would try to like 
casually lean on it like i'm like leaning back at least that's an impressive feat uh because uh, i'm gonna fall over in a second so I, there's like a one minute <laughs> anyway, like i was just trying to make it a little different uh exactly. I, and just to compare and contrast i'm not much of a traveler um we've actually just booked our our first uh visit to calgary uh alberta here in canada you notice, by the way, like the more like fun, lighthearted episodes, I call it Canada. But when I start talking about like mental health and stuff like that, I say Canada. I've noticed that people. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And for us, like the, the big attraction is just going to West Edmonton Mall because like Jen and I, we love going to malls and West Edmonton Mall is like one of the biggest. It's the biggest in North America. It's got its own water park. Small steps for me, people. All right. Because when you were talking about Bali, it reminded me I'd seen this image on or a video on TikTok of there was like a lineup of people getting to the top of Mount Everest. It, yes. it used to be that a few people would get up to make it up there once in a, in a while. But now there's a whole like a whole train of people. You would think it was Chick-fil-A or something like that. There's just all these people lined up for it. So, yeah. And I think yeah. that that's really important. I want to jump in there and tell travelers that the world is full of beautiful places. And I find a lot of times I get people coming to me for advice on travel and they want to go to Europe and they want to see like Rome, Florence, Paris, maybe, maybe Prague and Munich. And they want to spend like three days in each of these places. That sounds exhausting. And so I encourage anyone who wants to travel or even like, like yourself hasn't traveled a lot is actually really listen to yourself. What do you really enjoy? Like if you enjoy going to malls, go to malls. If you enjoy hikes, do you really need it to be Everest? Like, mm -hmm. yes, I think hiking Everest base camp sounds really interesting, but my time is on earth is so limited. And there's so many other amazing hikes that I want to do that I'm going to prioritize places that are not only less crowded, but are a lot closer to my ideal hiking experience, which I'm learning from doing Kilimanjaro is probably more a hut to hut hike mm -hmm. where you don't <laughs> carry your things and you stay in a hut rather than like a multi-day, really difficult, like traversing type hike. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate that. I'll just say one last thing on my end and then we'll shift gears. For me, the thing that I appreciate in, in life is the idea of uh, hybridization, trying to combine the best of both worlds. Um, uh, coincidentally, or perhaps not, my girlfriend is half Asian, half uh, English. So there's there's ways that it manifests in ways I wasn't expecting. When we went to go see Fort York in Toronto, you can see all of the structures from back when Fort York was in operation and, you know, at war. And then you can see the condominiums being built in the background. And I took this photo that had both the the historical buildings as well as the condos in the background. And that became a, a, a background image for me. So I, I appreciate seeing the preservation of history, but also the willingness for progress as well and seeing how the two of them can get along. So that's something that I would really value. Yeah, man, I, that reminds me of a story that I've never told before. So I'll, I'll sure, tell it. Yeah, go for it. And so I, I did a motorcycle trip through Vietnam, which was as a like very well-traveled backpacker, that's kind of like a rite of passage. But for people that haven't traveled a lot, that might sound like absolutely insane. Um, so it was really important to me that I had this experience. So I had to like fly back to my hometown, Overland Park, Kansas, enroll in motorcycle courses, like in a community college parking lot. And then when I got my, my motorcycle license, I was like, okay, I'm ready. Let's go to 
I don't know what I was thinking because, um, by the way, orange cones and like Vietnamese trucks, you know, going 40 miles an hour around a curve, very different. So it was one of the most dangerous, scary, probably borderline idiotic things I've ever done. Um, and I did it and I loved it. And one of my favorite evenings was toward the end of the trip. You're a little more confident on the bike. So you're a little less exhausted in the evening. Like you're, mm-hmm. you haven't been tense the entire day. And so um, happened to be a um, like a huge soccer win for Vietnam. And I'm not even going to pretend to know the details or who they beat or whatever. But what happened was this town, Da Nang, just turned into an incredible party. I mean, everybody's making noises, blowing horns, lighting off fireworks, screaming, drinking beers. And admittedly, we were a little too exhausted to like partake. So we're sitting on these little plastic chairs for anyone that's been to Southeast Asia, you know exactly what I mean. There are these little like outdoor patio sets. And we're watching all of this and I am just like pinching myself that this is my life. And when I thought like the night couldn't get any better, I'm with like two Canadians, two English guys and an American. And we're all just having beers, just talking about our travels and our lives. When I think the night can't get any better, this old man walks by and in perfect English, he was like, oh, you're Canadian. And he looks at the two Canadians because they were speaking and he sits down. (laughs) He doesn't even ask. He just sits down with us and he starts telling us his life story. And his father was a French officer in the military when the French came over, married his mom. And so this man is fluent in English, French, and of course, Vietnamese. And he just has incredible stories and was just so complimentary. And again, just really elevated this experience of our evening from like the rowdy footballer fans Mm -hmm. to this like incredibly generous old man that clearly was very excited to talk to foreigners. A very intimate moment, a very intimate encounter considering the bombastic nature of everything else going around, it sounded like even he was just looking for some peace and serenity. And you know something that's never actually occurred to me, and I'd love to hear from my audience about this, you all know what to do, it's Joseph Adam Pack for coachingpodcast.com, and it's spelled the way you think, is because someone is able to speak multiple languages, and I think certain thought processes are unique to each language, and so how learning different languages allows you access to different thought processes, and then what happens when you combine those together. So that's, I've never really considered that before, but that's been my takeaway from what you've told me. It's absolutely true. I am really working on my Spanish, and I can have almost any conversation that I want to have. By no means am I fluent. However, I can converse in any way that I need to now. And my travels in Spanish speaking countries are 1000% better than before when I knew how to like ask where the bathroom was. And I also have a theory that your personality is different in each language. And so I'd be really curious to hear like, your audience who speaks multiple languages, if they agree. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I, I got to tell you this story, and then I promise you we're shifting gears. But um, early on when I was doing the, an e-commerce program, I, sp- I spoke to somebody who is in Milan. And as, as an Italian 
on both sides. Not being able to speak the language has always been a source of guilt for me. And so I had, she had asked, so have, you ever, have you ever going to come to, to Roma? And I said, I, I just, I don't speak the, I don't speak Italian and I just don't feel right going back to the mother country, not speaking the mother tongue. And she says, oh, so do, do you know any Italian at all? I'm like, yeah, fangulo. She says, oh yeah, you're fine. Come on over. <laughs> It's funny you say that my my Italian professor. So I studied Italian in Florence. So yeah, studio italiano aferente. Ma mi italiano è horrible, and everyone says that I sound like I'm speaking Spanish when I'm speaking Italian, or or the opposite. So it depends on how many drinks I've had. And one of the very first lessons I got was exactly that phrase because we were. I was 19 when I studied in Florence. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there was a bunch of us young, cute American girls. And that was one of the first things my professor taught me. So, grazie, professore. <laughs> I was trying to think of something in Italian to say in response to that. I can't do it. We're moving on. It's hard not to be at least a little envious of the, the lifestyle that you live, coming from someone who was a hermit. But, you know, it's, everything is a, is a mixed bag. There's upsides, there's downsides to it. So... I think the first thing that we should do now is to really fill in the audiences, you know, what allows you to live this way and what work are you doing? That is the reason why we have you on the program today. Absolutely. So I want to first say that I always prioritize traveling. So even when I had a nine to five job working for an American company, I always prioritized travel. So one of the first things I did was I got a job where I could work remotely. And that's commonplace now, but this was in 2015. And so it was very unique. And I took a significant pay cut in order to do so. Um, but it was so important to me because it allowed me to work from anywhere. So that was the first thing. Um, so I would like to be fully transparent about that. Like it was my nine to five was me sitting on a computer, but then I would shut my computer and on a Tuesday night, I could be, you know, listening to Fado in Portugal or dancing in Buenos Aires. And so that's like the number one piece of advice that I have for people that want to live that way, especially in their 20s. I'm in my 30s now, and I don't quite want to do the backpacker thing as much as I used to. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what I did. Then while working for someone else, I started to buy rental properties. And I think that's where I get a lot of people caught up like, whoa, 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 you said you weren't making very much money. And I wasn't like I was making my paycheck when I was make, bought that first property, I think was forty nine thousand. And I was living in Denver, which is a pretty high cost of living city. And I bought my first rental property in Kansas City. So I had to move to Kansas City because in the U.S., you can put down as little as three percent on your primary residence which meant my down payment was $7,000. And so I think that's really important to talk numbers because I think a lot of people who aren't in real estate have preconceived notions mm -hmm. that it's really expensive. But for me, I saved up $7,000 and that was my down payment. And then I made sure I had probably another 15,000 in the bank in case anything went wrong. And thankfully it just didn't. Like I picked the right house. I did the right renovations. I chose the right roommates. And then I continued traveling. And so I would spend three months in Europe and three months in South America working on my computer and that rental property cash flowed or I profited every month. And that's what helped me, you know, create more income and more wealth over time. At the time, were you involved in, say, online 
groups who were also having discussions about real estate? How, like, what research were you doing that helped you make an informed decision? Well, that first one, not at all, especially comparatively to where I'm at now. For that first one, I look back and I'm like, how did I know these things? And I think I knew enough that I bought a good deal. So I bought, you know, the ugliest house in the nicest neighborhood. And I paid a lot of attention to what houses like in the neighborhood had done to be worth more. So I now know that that's called like comparables. And I was looking at comps in the neighborhood. But at the time it was just like, okay, I can buy this house for 217,000. But if I renovate it, then it can be worth 300,000. And so I was just doing like the simplest real estate strategy I could come up with. I have seen that when my grandmothers, which by the way, in Italian is nonno, but nonna, uh, my, when my grandmother's home was sold, it was bought out by a different family who had no intention of living there. They gutted the place, renovated it, and they were able to increase the value of it at $100,000. The relationship between owning the property, but also investing it, not just additional capital, but resources, time, expertise. Was any like personal flair or personal preference involved in any of that in perhaps how you would want to attract certain clients to want to purchase it, like like trying to attract the, the ideal people? Yeah, great question. So Thank my you. goal with that property is that I actually want to hold on to it as long as possible. That's not always the case, which is why I bring that up. Sometimes you buy a property, you do exactly what this person you're talking about did, raise the value, and then you sell it. Um, in this case, I want to hold on to that property because what's happening in that neighborhood is they're actually tearing down these little like 1960 Cape Cods and building these like mini mansions on the on the lot and then selling them a house two doors down just sold for 1.3 million for your listeners this is in prairie village kansas so like 1.3 million in kansas gets you a lot of house a lot of house and so that is eventually my plan but to answer your question, I, in the meantime, want to continue to rent it out because I profit about $800 a month. That's after paying my mortgage, setting money aside for insurance, taxes, future repairs, um, vacancy, paying for property management, all of these things. And I still profit $800 a month. Well, $800, not going to change your life when you're spending, let's say seven to $10,000 a month. But at the time I was only spending 2000 to $3,000 a month. So $800 a month was a huge benefit. And I knew that I wanted to rent to tenants who were little headache. And so I decorated the place in a way that really attracted like I guess I'm I'm not breaking any housing laws because I'm talking theoretically. I wanted like cute 20 something girls to live in my house because I was a 20 something girl. Um, and thankfully I had incredible tenants that moved in. And what's really funny, Joseph, is that I kind of actually deem this house the magic marriage house <laughs> because every person that moves into this house gets engaged and then moves out and another girl moves in and then that person gets engaged. So it could also just be it's the Midwest and people in their 20s get engaged. But I saw the trend. I have commitment issues. So I immediately moved to Europe. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Um, one thing that you had said and that, that I just had to follow up on was the concept of a mini mansion. I think at, in a vacuum, if somebody had asked me to describe what a mini mansion is, I'd say it's the house, right? Like what, like, I, I just I just want to visualize like what exactly are these properties that have that particular connotation? Yeah, I think that they're properties that have very little yard because the builder wanted to take up like every square foot of the lot. Whereas yeah. the house next door is significantly smaller, but it has most of the lot as a backyard for like kids to play in or for people to enjoy. Whereas these like mini mansions, they're taking up the entire lot. And so in juxtaposition to the house next door, they look so big. Okay. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. I just, if I'm just thinking about my parents' backyard, for instance, if we turn that into a structure, because you wouldn't just get the one room or two rooms you would have the opportunity to build another room on top carve out the the bottom floor as well extend the basement so you're getting like three to four separate rooms so okay okay cool i can see that so one of the things that we had that was an important touch point in this was that with the money that you were making which was good but not necessarily like you know hollywood hills good is that it still gave you the ability to look for property and a lot of people, and I frankly have to consider myself as part of this group, have almost fallen into despair when it comes to property ownership because it just doesn't seem like that there is a, um, a a realistic path towards it. So do you have experience in helping people or advising people who are kind of stuck in that? And maybe like what choices do people have to make to overcome a lot of the barriers, whether that is due to high taxation like we have here in Canada? It's a great country, but... Mm -hmm. we're paying a lot of money just to live our lives. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh man, I could talk so much about Canadian investing, but Mm -hmm. let's just talk about like the, the feeling of despair of not being able to buy a home in a place that you want to live. Let me be the first to say that I feel the same way. I own multiple properties. So I own eight buildings. It's 19 apartment units. So I own 19 units and they're not in places that I want to live. And so my motto and my motto for anyone that's feeling this way is live where you want and invest where the numbers make sense. Mm -hmm. So one of my properties, I can rent out one of the units furnished to travel medical professionals or anyone looking to stay like for 90 days or so. And I can rent that for 1,875. So what I decided that summer when I bought that property was that's my monthly budget for Airbnbs. You can't stay in London or New York or Toronto for $18.75, but you can live like a queen in places like Mexico City, Antigua, Guatemala, even even Lisbon, Portugal. Maybe you can find something for $1,800, maybe. Maybe it's more $2,200 these days. Mm -hmm. But what I tell people is that buy an investment property because it's not only for me a cash flow, as I've shared with you guys, but it's also a wealth builder and a tax benefit, if, especially if you're a high income earner, to own real estate and then live where you want. And maybe that means that you're going to be a renter, at least for the foreseeable future, maybe not forever. Maybe someday you will have enough capital to buy something that you really want to live in. 
But for now, what I encourage a lot of people to do, especially young people who are living in expensive cities, is buy rental properties in less expensive places for all the reasons that I just listed. Man, I really hadn't thought about that. I think for a lot of us, the issue came from, and I'm not trying to counterpoint you, by the way, I'm just telling you where I came from with this, which is for us in order to want to justify investing in property, it's because we, we want to live in that property we might as well, right? Because we have to live somewhere. Um, it was fortunate for me that a, a, a living opportunity opened up that I can take and has eased a lot of that burden. Hence, the reason why I was able to finally book a trip for the first time in my life on as well. Okay, sorry, that's a lie. I've been on other trips, but that's the first time that we booked a flight. So it was... It's honestly like that's something that I could talk to my friends about after this conversation is, hey, why don't we just like look up online or just, you know, study Canada, study the map, see if we can figure out where could we afford property somewhere in the country. And maybe even if there's like a way to like own property in, in other countries, too. I don't know how realistic that is, but you never know. Right. That could be something that we could look into. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I also wanted to make a couple of points about this that I'd love to hear your reaction to. So bear in mind that I'm not like formally turning this into a question. There's just a lot of things that run through my mind is when it comes to places like Toronto, uh, New York City, places with high cost of living, we can complain and even put into action issues that we may have with the the government. But like, say here in, in, in Canada, you notice I fluctuated between two depending on where, where my mindset is. It's, this is an expensive country to live because this country goes through multiple weather patterns. We have cold season, we have hot season, we have tepid season, and then every so often we have a day that has all of those <laughs> all together. So structurally, our our power grid has to account for a lot of variances in weather patterns that, par- say, like areas close to the equator may not have to deal with. Um, then, of course, you get like hurricanes in Florida. So, yeah, I mean, there's obviously there's issues in pretty much any part of the world, but Canada has a lot of specific issues. We have lower population than in the States relative to our land mass. And what I'm getting at is that like, it doesn't matter who's in office. It's going to be an expensive place to live. We just have a higher, higher cost of, of living. And so you get to, to Toronto. Yeah. It's going to be hugely expensive. A lot of that is just beyond our control. It's the innate value of a place that has access to a lot of services and is able to provide a world-class lived experience in a place that is more difficult to to pull off. So that's just stuff that I had to make peace with to understand that, like, it, look at the Monopoly board, okay? You have your Baltic Avenue, but you also have your boardwalk. Some places are just going to be more expensive. There's nothing you can do about it. There's, there's so many ways we could go with this, but Toronto is one of maybe two, you could argue, sorry, Montreal, maybe three cities. Like if you are Canadian and you want to live in a city, you only have three options. Whereas in the US, while our population is, I think, 12 times more than you guys, we have so many cities. And now the ability to work remotely has opened it up that we can, we can live so many different places. Like you could be running, you know, a 10 figure business from a tiny town in Idaho. It doesn't really matter anymore. But for you in Canada, there's really, you're going to live in Vancouver or Toronto if you're a city person. And while your population is small, those cities aren't big. And so it's just simple economics of supply and demand. And so you just don't have enough supply for the demand. And at some point you guys opened up for foreign investors And so you have so many overseas investors that own property, especially in Toronto, 
and it has just skyrocketed prices. And so your ability to buy a property in Toronto and have it cash flow, as I mentioned, is nearly impossible, especially with interest rates where they're at right now. And so what I see as a solution, because I don't want to be just doom and gloom, is you can either A, invest in a different country, or B, you can invest as what I call an appreciation investor. So you're going to buy something in maybe Toronto or even outside, let's say in like London or Hamilton, and you're going to likely not cash flow, but you're banking on the fact that your prices continue to go up significantly and you have time. And so that's the great thing about investing when we're in our 30s is that we have time. I don't need to get rich tomorrow, but I hope to be really, really rich in 15 years. And so you can invest as an appreciation investor. I just couldn't do that at the beginning because I, I needed the properties to make money so that I could either A, live off of that cash flow or B, buy more property with that cash flow. But before I digress, any any comments about kind of my thoughts on Canadian investing? Oh, well, I, I appreciate it immensely. And it does uh, make me slightly reconsider what I said about like, there's nothing we can do about it because foreign investment is a complicated issue. There is money coming in, which does go to our infrastructure, but it also at the same time, it minimizes our own opportunities. And one of the big things, our, our elections are sort of due, not, not tomorrow, but they're on their way. And one of the main issues on the agenda here in our country is uh, how many more people are we allowing to come in by way of immigration? We require immigration. I mean, every, everyone in the West is at some point was an immigrant. So this isn't supposed to be like an anti-immigration thing by any means. It's pro-immigration, but it's like, mm, we might need to dial this back a little bit. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really bothers me, especially about foreign investment, is that it's all the other businesses who are looking to support the potential tenants who are supposed to be occupying these buildings. So if you take a condo and some of these are pretty tall. So when I'm estimating that like 600 to 1000 people are living in it, I might actually be underselling it, frankly. And so all these other stores, convenience stores, well, I don't know, laundromats, restaurants, cafes, all of these as a result of gentrification, they want to support the people who are moving into these places, but people who aren't moving in because the foreign investors are just buying it and holding it, even though it's in their best interest to rent it out. So there should be some ruling in place that says, look, if you're going to buy a property, especially outside, you're either going to pay uh, the lion's share in taxes because you've affected all the other businesses who are banking on people to patronize their, their businesses, or you rent it out to somebody. Yeah, you got to make a choice. You can't just take it and hold it. I think you, you bring up a really good point. And for listeners that don't realize Canada has the highest percentage of immigrants in the world. And so, I mean, Canada is a great place to live, except for your weather that you talked about. Um, but Canada is an amazing place to live because you have such great services for your population. And so that is going to cost people money. And you bring up a really great point, which is that you believe that you, there should be more regulation on investors and their ability to purchase. Well, one thing that Canada is really good at is you guys have a lot of regulations on investors' ability to rent the place that they already own. 
And so one of the things that gets talked about a lot in real estate investing, especially when talking to Canadians, is that Canada is close to being a place where housing is a right. So let's say hypothetically you own, let's say you own a single family home outside of Calgary and you maybe inherited the property and you and your partner didn't want to live in it. So you rent it out. And at some point, your tenant runs into some economic trouble because of the economy or they lose their job or inflation, whatever it might be, and they can no longer pay rent. There is the risk in Canada and places in the U.S., this happens all over, that that person is going to have the ability to live there for free. But if you have a mortgage on that property, it's not like you can pick up the phone and call the bank and say, hey, sorry, can't pay my mortgage this month because my tenant's not paying. And so it creates this issue for landlords when governments start to step in and support tenants too much Mm -hmm. and don't support landlords in the same way. And again, we could, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but it's one of my concerns when I talk to Canadian investors is I want you to make sure that whatever you buy, you have the right to rent it out and to to hold your tenant to pay rent. Um, I'm not looking to be a monster. I hate when people mention things like slumlord or just how terrible landlords are, because Mm -hmm. the reality is, is I provide a really safe, semi-affordable place to live. And I'm communicative and kind to my tenants. And we all have to live somewhere. You said it yourself. And so why wouldn't you want to have a nice landlord that cares about you rather than a big corporation or a hedge fund that owns thousands of units? So I prefer to invest in places where the law is in my favor as like a small time landlord. Mm -hmm. So I I wanted to add one thing to this. uh, which is largely in an agreement, and then I'll, I'll give you a reaction, and then we'll shift gears again. So th- the trouble with my country, and it is a great place to live, uh, I mean, in here in, in the town of Ajax, um, which is like, it's kind of funny because if somebody lived in New York and traveled from one side of the New York to the other, it would still technically be one town, but it gets divided up into the different boroughs and Manhattan, Queens and all that. I, I, it's hard not to see Ajax and the Durham region as a borough of Toronto. And, and I predict that within like a 30 to 60 year time span, Toronto will gobble all of these up. Cause it'll, it's just, it's easier to manage things like transit, like waste management, if everyone's kind of under one umbrella. So that, that's how I, I predict that's going to happen. And um, what I love yeah. about Ajax is that it's run well and the city services are sensible um, our community center, for instance, uh, that's nearby, is like a little slice of heaven. Um, like a, a, even little things like a, a youth center for the kids to go play, fitness, a center, a pool, like the whole thing is run very well. And so I'm okay with paying taxes for services that work well for me. If you look at countries or cities or whatever as businesses, it's an interesting way to make peace with it because it's like, well, I'm getting services, I'm paying my fees. Here's how yeah. this works. So I'm not I, I don't as libertarian as I am, I'm not part of the taxation is theft theory. I'm I just I'm just not there. So the problem that I'm getting at is that the more we either um side with the people, which often is a good idea, uh and the more we provide services uh, for the people, um it Upward mobility becomes more difficult because our day-to-day living expenses 
are more noticeable on our bottom line. So going to even now as I you know live in a home and thankfully a lot of my expenses have eased up, there's still a lot of things that I have to pay for. Uh, every single purchase um, is is taxed at 13. Uh, percent So it 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 really starts to eat away at our bottom line, and then you get into this this gap where you're you're making enough money that the government is definitely going to ding you. But you're not making it enough that you now have the resources to subvert federal uh, taxation. And so my worry is that the more that we try to protect the people, the harder it is for anyone to excel. And that's what makes the United States appealing is that it's it's not as depending on the state, of course, some states do not have a lot of federal or services and so you save a lot of the money but you have to be able to look after yourself and Mm -hmm. (laughs) up to and including uh you know getting into a gunfight so there's there's a there's a mixed bag in one way or another yeah i think that i'm seeing it all across the board like canadian and american and and worldwide is that people's ability to save or or get ahead when it comes to like a nest egg so that you can even invest is getting harder and harder. And um, I, I I find this TV show really cringe, the one with uh, Ramit about how to get rich because he features so many Americans that are like in debt up to their ears. And I have a friend, she's Slovakian and we were at a conference in Mexico city and she was like, I have to ask you, is that true? And I was like, what? And she's like, do people have that much credit card debt and that much student loan debt? Or is this like dramatized because it's a TV show? And I don't know the facts on like how much debt Americans have or Canadians, but I can tell you from just like personal experience that, yeah, like a lot of my peers have a lot of credit card debt and or student debt or both. And I think that it's really hard when you are paying 17 to 21% interest on credit card debt or have a student loan bill of up to $200,000, it's really hard for the average person to start thinking about investing. And so one of the things that I did, because I did pay for school by myself, um, my mom is a cleaning lady, my dad works for a construction company. I went to a state school that frankly, I was not excited about. Um, I grew to love my alma mater, but at the time I felt, I don't want to offend anyone, but I felt like a failure. Like I really imagined that I was going to go far, far away to probably like a liberal arts college in California. Thank goodness I didn't do that. But I I did not want to go to the university 45 minutes down the road. As I've told you, I'm a world traveler. Like mm-hmm. I needed to be in big places with big things where people speak multiple languages And my fear was that I was like always just going to be a girl from Kansas and live and die in Kansas. And there's nothing wrong with that for anyone that that wants that life. But I just had really big dreams of traveling the world. And I made a big sacrifice by choosing a school that I wasn't excited about, choosing to live below my means and having multiple jobs. Is that an option for everyone? Absolutely not. And I'm speaking from such a place of privilege to even be talking about like choosing a state school and being able to do these things. But I made decisions early on to not accumulate a lot of debt and to like pay off things as I go. And I gave up a lot of the luxuries Mm -hmm. that peers were choosing or maybe even had the ability to choose because their parents could afford them. And my point being 
is that I made decisions in my 20s to make sure that I kept my debt to a minimum and then eliminated it and then just slowly built wealth. Like my first property, my down payment was $7,000. It wasn't $70,000. And so one thing I love about my country is that we give people like me the ability to build true wealth, even when you are making it all on your own. This like it's... Seven thousand dollars. I mean, I think adjusted for inflation, that'd probably be closer to like twelve thousand, fourteen thousand now. But even that is still digestible. Like I, I have that kind of capital, and so yep. it's uh, that was like the big thing that I wanted to really uh, uh, take away from this conversation is just like how uh, accessible property ownership can be if you're willing to start putting in the time. And and I and I don't want to excoriate people for choosing short-term over long-term because we don't know how much time we actually have on this planet. We can get hit by a truck tomorrow. So Lord knows I've made plenty of short-term decisions. But for me, long-term decision-making definitely tied into like my career and making sure that like I, I'm going to stick to something. I want to make sure I get good at it and make sure that I can treat that as an investment. I definitely wanted to shift gears into how you act as a coach in this because I'm fascinated to hear that side of it. Um, but the last thing that I'm curious about in terms of like practical means to own properties that you ever dealt with people or even been involved in this yourself who were like, have people ever gotten together on a property? Like a bunch of friends get together to invest in something? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the last property that I purchased was with a, a partner and it was someone that I, I don't know well, I'll start by saying that, but her goals and my goals aligned. So she and I met at a real estate meetup she makes a lot of money. So like salary, well, well over six figures, like closer to half a million dollars. So the woman has a lot of money, but not a lot of time. And I have time and I've figured out a model that works. Like I mentioned, I furnish the units, I rent them out for 90 days or more. The cash flow is fantastic. So what we did is we bought a property together. So we opened an LLC and purchase a property together. And our roles are really defined. And the reason I tell that example, because if you were to go in on a property with like a, a few friends or maybe like you and another couple wanna buy a vacation rental together, I recommend it as long as there are like legally binding documents mm -hmm. and really clear communication. So another building I purchased with a partner her and I, we've had a rocky start to this relationship. She was doing a lot of the in-person furnishing because she lives where the property is. I'm traveling all of the time. And so I did not communicate well about what the expectations were. Like I found the property, I managed the property, I find the tenants, I created the strategy. And so when it comes to putting together a nightstand, she's going to put together the nightstand. But because I didn't communicate that well, we ran into some problems. And so if you're looking to do this, make sure that it's really clear on who does what and what your goals are. So for the partner where we had a rocky start, her and I both want to hold on to this property for at least seven years. So there's never going to be a day, hopefully, where she picks up the phone and she's like, I want to buy it. Like, I want out. I want all the money. And if she does, because it could happen, we have in legal writing that I have first right to purchase. So I can purchase it from her or buy it from her and then I'll own the whole property. I would love that situation. That would be great. I also would love if we hold on to it for seven years because it profits about $3,000 a month. So it's a great little property for us. 
now let's take the partnership where I felt like I created that partnership with a lot more business acumen. And it was really clear that what she wanted and I wanted. And so our roles are so defined that we have an annual meeting on the calendar every year to discuss the property, to go over the books, to talk about tax strategy, and to say, do you want to keep it, sell it, or do what we call a 1031 exchange into a bigger property, which is like paying real life monopoly, taking like a house and buying a hotel. Mm-hmm. And so we have like a meeting on the calendar and that's how we handle that relationship. And both of those partnerships are fantastic. And so if you maybe have, let's say $10,000 that you want to invest you and you could partner with someone else that has maybe $90,000 to invest. And then you just structure the roles in a way that the person that brings less money might do more of the work. Mm-hmm. You just uh, made me think that Monopoly really needs to update their game board and start adding rules where you can buy a home, but you can Airbnb it before you have to sell and turn it into a hotel. Exactly. Yeah. And you can you can only rent it out for 30 days or more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it would have to be in like the equivalency of turns, right? So like you get four turns and then, yeah, someone else has to rent it out. So uh, when it comes to your coaching, I guess the first thing that I'm wondering is that, I mean, some of this I imagine has to do with helping people understand the the numbers and the figures but coaching largely also entails a lot of spiritual guidance and uh, emotional championing Um, and this ties into a lot of what you talked about at the beginning of the episode with the the trips that you that, that you run for the other investors so if there's an average client relationship what does that look like when you're when you're acting as a coach Yeah, I think that what I find is that a lot of people aren't living the life of their dreams because of a lack of information. You know, they're not reading the right books or listening to the right podcasts. It all is because of what's going on up here. It's all a mindset. And so limiting beliefs become, I think, one of the biggest struggles for anyone looking to do something, whether it be, you know, create a stream of passive income lose weight, quit a job that they don't like, maybe quit a relationship that's no longer working for them. I think limiting beliefs and mindset are so important. And so that's something I spend a lot of time working on with my clients. In addition to the strategy, Um, in real estate, you can mess up. There's a huge risk. If you buy a bad deal, you could be in big trouble financially. And that later will like take a toll on your emotions as well. And so I think teaching them the the process of how I buy properties long distance, and that's my specialty, is I teach people exactly that motto, live where you want and invest where the numbers make sense. So I'm teaching people how to invest long distance. Um, So I teach a lot of people who live in expensive markets how to buy properties in less expensive markets. And all of the emotional like, oh, but what if this happens? What if, how do I buy something in Iowa? I've never even been to Iowa. Well, guys, I've done that. So don't worry. I'm going to tell you exactly what I did to safeguard myself from bad things happening. And a lot of it has to do with mindset. I think for a lot of people too, and this ties into the mindset idea, is that owning property is considered one of the the great milestones of our western lived experience um if if you look at you know marriage and graduating school there are certain i think parts of our our trajectory here in the west that as the generations um 
continue to have a different say in things. I feel like property ownership is, is changing in that conversation. So like for people who are looking to own property really for themselves, are people coming in with a certain limiting beliefs like, oh, I've got to own the property or I've got to live in a home at this point for, for X reasons? Or just kind of like decoupling people from their preconceived ideas of why they need to live in a, in a certain place or own a certain place? I think it's less about that. And it's more about like, I, I talked to so many people, men and women. For a while, I thought it was women, but I just find that more women come to me because I am a woman. But I see the same thing in the men that I coach. And people just don't think that they're smart enough. And I want to tell everyone, like, like buying rental property has nothing to do with intelligence. Absolutely nothing. And and so I see most of the limiting beliefs is like, oh, well, I, I just don't know how to do that. And I'm like, do you think I knew how to, like, you know, calculate depreciation on a rental property that I bought three years ago? No, of course I didn't know how to do that because that didn't matter in the first three months of looking for a property. Then you get a new set of, of like challenges and things you need to learn or lessons that you should learn before you like underwrite a property and finance a property and then purchase the property and then find tenants and then handle renovations and capital expenditures. And so I really try to preach just in time learning People get so stressed out about like, should it be in an LLC? Like, how do I form a trust? And I'm like, bro, you don't even own a rental yet. Like, why are we even talking about this? If if I were to put myself in those shoes, and frankly, I, I see myself realistically having some of those concerns too. I think a lot of it is just fear, like fear that I'm going to break a law, fear that I'm going to uh, end up with someone in the building who's going to terrorize the place. There's just that feeling, I think, of powerlessness, where yeah. if the, the governing bodies that be or BlackRock or who, whomsoever wants to have a hand in, in my home, that I'm I'm constantly the one fighting for my property. And then you look at the discourse that goes on on social media, and respectfully, landlords do not get um, the the support of the people oftentimes it's the landlords are the ones that are perceived to be the uh the bad guys in this so could i could i get a, a i sound like a media i sound like a reporter here can i get a statement from you about this like what do you feel is some of the issues that landlords are responsible for that what uh, maybe they're doing to perpetuate the problems and then what do you feel like are some of the myths or some of the things that people are misunderstanding about landlords that Hey, we're, we're trying to make this work too. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things I think is really interesting as you look at investing is I could have bought the car wash in this small town in Iowa that I ended up buying a duplex instead, but both of them are a business. Like I'm running my duplex as a business and I'm running a car wash as a business. And so I could have ran either of those. The issue is that if the car wash, like quarter machine eats your quarter, you're not like, oh, like the car wash owner is like taking advantage of me. You're just mad mm -hmm. at the stupid coin machine that is not working. Whereas the duplex, if my sink is clogged and I don't respond in like an exceptional, like in a, in a responsible way, like within maybe 24 hours, send out someone and this person is living with a clogged sink, which in the scheme of issues in your life, I don't think a clogged sink is going to like ruin your life not being able to shower sure that's really inconvenience air conditioning going out in the middle of the summer 
also very inconvenient, but a clogged sink is not going to like cause that much turmoil yet. I am the enemy because the sink is clogged. And so I think that when I look at my duplex as a business, it really helps me to respond in a respectful way and create a safe space for the tenant to feel heard and understood. And that, yes, of course I don't want that sink to be clogged and I want to fix it as quickly as possible, but it's probably not likely that my plumber can get over there in the next 45 minutes. It's probably going to be tomorrow because they're booked. And communication goes a long way. Communication goes such a long way. And I think like communicating to other landlords that like people want a safe space to live and a safe space to communicate their issues. A lot of landlords get a really bad reputation because they're letting their units kind of depreciate and become unlivable or they're cheapskates and they don't want to spend the money. But I look at my buildings, I want to keep them. I kind of know the timeline of when I want to keep them and when I want to sell them and how much renovation I want to do over time. So the clogged sink is a real life example in one of my units. And so I'm not just going to fix the symptoms of the clogged sink. I'm going to fix the disease and I'm just going to completely redo the plumbing behind the wall because I want to keep this building for the next five plus years. And so let's just fix it really well. And I think when you go into a rental property as a business, that helps also being realistic that this stuff is going to happen. I think I see a lot of new investors, like they're devastated when the dishwasher breaks and I'm like, what do you, it's a dishwasher is maybe 600 bucks. The last one I bought was 400. Like, are you telling me you don't have $400 in that business savings account? It's, mm-hmm. I, it's not Sarah Weaver's personal savings account anymore. It's my business savings account. And I accounted for a broken dishwasher. And so I'm, I, I'm not going to lose sleep over that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm digressing, but I oh hope no, that- this is it's great. It's there's a really important takeaway that is, and before I I, I, st- I say that one thing that I wanted to make sure that I was doing a little bit more of was I just want to like challenge the guests a little more. I, I never want to be like all fluff, right? Um, but I'm saying this in in support and in praise of what you do because. So um, the the apartment that I lived in was under one property and then it was bought out within the last like three or four months before our move was set. Now, the the manager who had stepped in, absolutely wonderful person, open office policy, walk in, tell her her issues, reachable by email, try to solve things as best you can. Definitely not at fault. However, the, the overall company and the overall infrastructure led to a lot of sluggish response times so our our smoke alarm the the battery on it was close to kaput and so it starts going beep every i don't know every minute and i can drown that out while i'm you know playing my game but then it got closer and closer to bedtime and i realized i'm not going to get to sleep tonight this thing will keep me up all night and i was trying to figure out what would i do so i was tempted it was summertime so i was i was tempted to just bring my blankets and everything and just sleep and camp out on the balcony for it. And then I said, okay, you know what? There's a, 
there's a self check-in convenience store or sorry, a grocery store where you use an app to get in. It's going to be open. I'll go in. I'll see if I can find the batteries for it. So I, I get the, I get the batteries. It was just a battery issue. Thank goodness. It wasn't anything more like in, in innate inside of it. And I fixed it myself, but the actual formal response from the company didn't come until three days later. So the idea of me listening to that alarm go off for three days I would have gone crazy or moved in with my lived with my parents for three days, which also would have driven me crazy. So <laughs> no winning, no winning there. But the difference between dealing with a large company versus dealing with someone like you, who is actually like invested on a personal level in the properties, wants to see people do, live well in there, and understands that this is so people are going to value this. People want that ease. It's probably it is it is I think better to try to you know deal with another person business to business rather than try to uh, whatever savings you think you're getting living in a big building those savings are just being passed off by the company anyways um, and I'll say one other example of of savings so like our our sink collapsed because our dishwasher wasn't very good which by the way another example but as I was doing the dishes there was just too many dishes in it on the day and the sink fell it turns out that it was glued underneath as opposed to being placed above with flush lines all along. So, and then I, and then when I visited my parents and I inspected the sink out of curiosity and her and my parents sink is the correct way, which is the weight of the sink is keeping it from falling. It's not glued underneath. So little shortcuts like that do deteriorate a building. And it's just like, all right, well, as the tenants move in, they're probably going to be even less inclined to want to move out just because of like, Hey, we finally found something that we can afford. It's only going to get a thousand dollars more expensive in a year's time, so we might as well hold on to it. So it does come across as a little predatory at times. It's it's a complicated issue, right? But we all want to live somewhere. So, anyways, to summarize all of that, it is cool to see you do what you do and to encourage other people to look for property in places that aren't doing so well and try to enrich it with the knowledge that people are gathering from whereabouts that they happen to live and what those values are. Yeah. And one thing I want to make sure that we touch on, because I'm sure people are like, wait a minute, she like briefly mentioned that now she owns eight. Like, how did that happen? Sure. And so, so what I did, I'll just run through the finances really quick so that people have it is I lived in the first three properties. So lived in a property, was able to put 3% down, moved out, lived in another property, was able to put 3% down, moved out, lived in the third property, was able to put three and a half percent down. And so for math, that was 7,000, 5,000, and then 12,000 because that third property I actually bought a four unit building mm -hmm. and was able to put $12,000 down because I lived in one of the four units. And so all of a sudden I own, what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven units. And I only put down about $25,000. And I was getting my profit every month was close to about $4,000 a month in profit. And so the ability to live in the properties was absolutely my like secret sauce to being able to do this. Mm -hmm. And then the next property, property number four and property number five, I purchased using other people's money. So I like called up Joseph. I said, Hey, Joseph, can you give me $80,000? I'm going to give you 9% interest back, which is pretty good interest rate. Cause if it's in a savings account, you're making 1% or 0 0.02. And so I did that, bought the property, renovated the property, and then refinanced at the new rate was able to pay off Joseph with his interest 
and retain the property without any money, which sounds like a scam, but I promise you guys it actually works. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so now I own two properties where I didn't spend any of my own money except for some renovation. And then the last three properties that I purchased, I used partners, as I mentioned. And so all in, I like spent less than $40,000 of my own money and own about $2.3 million worth of real estate. I appreciate you clarifying that. And one thing that I think is important to make sure that I, I got from this too, is that when you get to the point where you're speaking to the version of me that has the 80 grand, is you've already a proven track record of this. So it's not like you came into this blind. This was like, okay, this isn't something that I would do on my first investment. This is something that I would do once I've gotten used to it. I understand what are some of the unforeseen circumstances that come up in the interest like as as property owners and as landlords. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what worked really well for me and my partners um, on the different properties is they are high income orders or high savers or both. And they're like, ah, I don't really want to deal with, you know, dishwashers and tenants and all of that. But I'd love to own real estate because of the tax benefits, as well as your building wealth and creating cash flow. And so for anyone listening, it, it really is possible in any kind of seat in real estate. I've chosen to be more hands-on and involved so that I could bring less capital to the projects. And then I, at the beginning, I believed in simple delayed gratification. I was living in properties that frankly, I didn't really want to live in, but I knew that it was going to help me build wealth. I'm going to take us into the last 10 minutes of this to, to start wrapping this, uh, this content up. Not for lack of like things to talk about, right? We could, I, I could, I could foresee another thirty minutes, another two hours. You know, I've never done like a three-hour Joe Rogan-style podcast. That's never really been my. It's not that I don't want to. It's just it's it's never really been in the budget. Um, just for the fun of it, what are maybe some of the unforeseen? Okay, this isn't two two sides of this. So unforeseen things that had come up and related to property ownership, but also like early on when you started working with people and coaching people, that degree of separation between you're helping them who are dealing with this, I feel like lent itself to a lot more potential catastrophe. So what were some of the issues that had come up that you had to deal with you didn't see coming? I think that I had to take the emotion out of it because I remember what it's like when you get that first, you know, AC bill and it's $2,000 and you're so upset. Well, then like, you know, either the next day or two weeks later, you're like, okay, well, that sucks. But again, I'm running this like a business. There is $2,000 in the savings account, or I can open a business credit card, whatever it might be. And so seeing my students go through that emotion, it's so hard for me not to like instant response to their message, but it's also not helpful to be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that's happening to you. And so it's better to like let them kind of sit in that emotion at least for a few hours, if not a day, and then come back when like, when they likely have a clear mind about what has happened. Uh, but that was so hard because I just want to jump in and like fix everything for my students. And um, also like when it comes to analyzing deals, I teach people how to analyze properties I have to stop doing it for them. And so I force them to do it themselves and they have to send me a screenshot of it. They can't even, I don't even want them to send me the spreadsheet because then I know myself, I'll go in and I'll change the numbers for them. But a screenshot allows me to say, like, I have to 
give them the feedback and they need to go back and adjust the numbers because you have to teach people how to do this on their own. Because in real estate, if a deal comes to them, you know, at 8 p.m. on a Tuesday, I'm not available. And then the deal's gone by 7 a.m. on Wednesday. And so I have to teach my students how to do it themselves. So for people who want to become students, what would you recommend are the whether that is capital that they should have built up or even just mindset? What would you what would you want people to have at the ready before they start working with you? I think for a one-on-one consultation, I would love to work with anyone that's maybe listened to this podcast or listened to anything on real estate and has basic questions. I think a one-on-one call is like taking the elevator to the penthouse rather than taking the stairs because you can hop on and you can ask me anything in 45 minutes. Um, if you're someone that is knows that you want to buy property in the next 180 days, then I highly recommend you join my 12-month program because like I mentioned with the just-in-time learning, there's so many different sets of challenges that happen throughout the process that if we work together for only four weeks, what happens seven weeks later when you go under contract and you have another whole set of challenges? As as far as... um. Actually, you know what? This is another one that we always want to make sure that we get out of it, too, is some of like the resonant case studies. Um, if you don't want to say people's names at school, we don't want to if you want to keep it anonymous. I, we respect that. But I, we always want to hear what were some of the success stories or some of the really transformative opportunities that you got to have a hand in. Yeah. Oh, man. There's so many, which is why I love doing what I'm doing. I'll like spitfire a few examples. So sure. um, John scheduled a one-on-one call with me, just like the 45-minute call. I think at the time I was charging like $189. He told me exactly what he wanted, where he wanted to invest, but he was so scattered. He like he thought he was telling me exactly, but he like wanted to do this and do that. I said, here, do this. When you get off the phone with me, I want you to call this real estate agent tell him that you're looking for this type of property and then get back to me. He did exactly what he I told him to do and fall and he's a man of action so like I want him to get a lot of the credit for what he did and he went under contract the very next day <laughs> and bought that property. And so I just think that is like an example of sometimes you just need someone to be like slow down, do step 1 2 3 and then mm-hmm. come back to me. So that's exactly what John did. Then we have Stacy. She came on the safari trip with no properties. And 14 days after returning home, she went under contract on her first furnished rental. So I think the power of community and being surrounded by people and realizing like, okay, if that guy can do it, surely I can do this. And now like, same thing. I like, this is step one. This is step two. And then from my 12-week mentorship program, I mean, I could give you probably 22 examples, but I'll give you one, which is a couple who live in California, very expensive market, Mm -hmm. young, young, young married couple. And they bought a property in the Midwest, um, completely sight unseen. And they're the ones that had kind of that freak out moment of, oh my gosh, this is wrong and that is wrong. And seeing them go through the whole process of like highly motivated, disappointed to really excited that they went under contract to really excited that they bought the property to really disappointed that something's wrong to, oh, okay, this is just how the emotions are going to be now that I own the property. Um, And now they have passive income and it's working and it wasn't easy, 
but it's working. And now they're ready to buy their second property. Um, another couple in their accountability group have picked up four units this year. So they started with one and now they have five. And so seeing people take massive action, I think brings me the most joy. And then I'll wrap this up with my favorite example, which is I had a husband and wife come to me and the husband knew that his wife hated her job and he felt responsible to create income so that to allow her to either change jobs or quit her job completely. And so we helped him furnish his Airbnb in North Carolina and his wife was kind of along for the ride for the whole process. She now manages that property and manages Airbnbs for other people in her town and was able to quit her job within eight months. And I take it that she very much so enjoys doing this much more. She not only is like a happier person, she's a better wife, a better mom. There's just like joy in their family that wasn't there before. Because for anyone listening, like when you don't like your job, that sucks. But when your partner doesn't like their job and they bring that misery home to mm-hmm. you every day, that's like a whole nother level of misery. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I better check in with the missus and make sure that I haven't been doing that. I, which I haven't, because I actually do like what I do. Um, but you know, full disclosure, when you know, when, when you're meeting someone for the first time as like part of my role, it's like oh, it does get pretty nerve wracking, and so it's like there's 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 a mix of emotions there. Nothing, it's not sunshine and rainbows the entire time, but it's certainly a fulfilling role. So I'm I'm really thankful for everything that we got to to do today. Um, I just have a couple more uh, last questions that are just part of our our goals to make sure we cover on the program in terms of your your platform as you have now what are your challenges um like and and these can be technical so if man i wish i was ranking higher on google or man i wish my my social media had more reach whatever you feel like you're you're trying to address what would you say are those challenges i think the biggest challenge in having multiple businesses so we talked about my real estate portfolio my coaching program the invested adventures i also own a design firm aria design services where we furnish airbnbs for investors so okay it all ties in yes and so my struggle is that that is a lot to handle while also traveling full-time trying to have a personal life taking care of my health both physical and mental. And so I feel really overstretched and I have hired and fired over the last two years and have really done a great job at delegating. Um, I've delegated a lot of the things that are not a like high dollar per hour task, as well as things that I just really didn't enjoy. And so now it's looking at what can I delegate that maybe I do really enjoy but I have to delegate it if I'm going to get to the next level. And so as a business owner, you have to give away some things that you're like, but I really like doing that. Okay. It doesn't really matter if you like doing it. Is there someone who could be better at it? And your like highest and best use needs to be somewhere else in the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Just to respond to that briefly, because one of my friends, he's into it and he's obsessed with automation and he noticed he was actually getting a lot of pushback from his coworkers because a lot of the things that they liked doing were were slowly being automated away. And he was like, "Well, why do why would people it, get, it gets done faster? Why would it people? Well, actually, it's very complicated. Sometimes it's 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 a matter of like enjoyment, which is a hard uh, nut to crack. But I think there's also like 
I think it also comes back to fear a little bit too, which is, well, I feel like I've accomplished eight hours worth of work today. Yeah, but it's eight hours worth of something that could have been delegated to somebody else, could have been automated. Once you distance the emotion side of it, it, it's maybe just not as efficient as, as things could be. And you know, hold on to that for as long as it lasts, but one way or another, efficiency is going to come come and get you. So you're much better off trying to adapt early. And as you said, uh, defer gratification. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think as a business owner, you have to make so many decisions in a day that you get decision fatigue and sometimes yeah. you make the wrong decision. And so I think as a business owner, I have to own that I've made some mistakes and that I'm just going to make mistakes over time. Um, but overall, I'm so proud of what I've built because not only do all of the businesses serve me personally and my lifestyle, um, we have done so much good for our clients. Like when clients come to an event, they don't just like Stacy, you know, go under contract, but like other people, they've gone home and they've quit jobs that they hate or had fierce conversations with their spouse that needed to happen. And mm-hmm. I like to think that they're living like better, happier lives because some something that happened on one of those trips. Well, I, I think that's a fantastic note to wrap this up on. Um, but as a courtesy, I did want to offer you the floor once more, just in case there was any other like points you wanted to make or reactions or uh, anything that you just wanted to make sure you got out of your system. Feel free to do so. And then otherwise, let the audience know how they can look into you or how they can yeah. find out more about you online. Absolutely. Well, thank you for challenging me. I haven't thought about, you know, Canadian politics and real estate investing in quite some time. So um, don't come at me, Canadians, if I miss said anything. I am a girl from Kansas that has only purchased in the Midwest. Um, but I am proud to say that I have worked with some Canadian investors and my knowledge is extensive in real estate investing, but not when it comes to Canadian investing. That's my disclaimer. Um, and then when it comes to finding me online, uh, please reach out to me if you guys enjoyed this episode. I really do read my DMs. I love hearing from you guys. And so you can find me at sarahdweaver.com. And my Instagram handle is sarahdweaver. And I really would love to hear from you guys. And then one thing I have not mentioned is that I wrote a book. And so I wrote a book on this specific real estate investing strategy called the medium term rental. So those furnished rentals where instead of renting for two night or three night stays, I rent for 30 days or more, not only because a lot of cities have regulations around it, but also it just works better for my lifestyle. I like it when a tenant moves in, they treat it like their home. They're there for three months. Usually they're silent for about two of them. And so it helps me travel and live abroad while providing a really great home for these people. Yeah. And I think it's a better experience too to have that sense of actually living there and not necessarily just being a visitor who happens to be using a bed exactly yeah, uh, it was a gino parati's episode earlier on where he just made the distinction between travel versus tourism and just like doing things on just that bite-sized timeline is it's just i don't know i mean yeah I mean, it's good for the economy but there's there's so much more that could be uh gleamed from a little bit more of like a long-term lived arrangement no matter how much time that we were going to have today we were we weren't going to cover everything but this may not be the last time that we have you on the program so it's been it's been a real slice to have you and thank you for your expertise and and if anybody does have any responses like you know, come after me. Don't come after my guests. I will be very, very unhappy if anybody does that. Um, <laughs> I try to make sure that I'm as much of a, 
uh, of an antagonist as possible so that I want to draw all that aggro. But for what it's worth, what you said was actually really good and interesting. Well, I want to commend you because I think you're you're exactly right. There's so many things that we could talk about when it comes to the rights of tenants and landlords. And it's something that a lot of real estate podcasts really steer away from. Um, and so I've really enjoyed this conversation because I, I really want people to see that like, especially in the US, like the ability for an individual to build wealth through real estate investing is there. And as troubled as my country is, and as much, I mean, many of my years in my 20s, I spent dissing the US and like, Mm -hmm. oh, like I was, you know, I wouldn't say ashamed of being American, but definitely lied and said I was Canadian during a, a certain election period because I was living in South America. And, and I think that I spent a lot of my time like seeing the bad in my country and I've made a conscious decision that one, no one wants to be around a negative person or someone bitter. And so I've really changed my outlook on my country and I am so grateful that I can, one, I have a passport that I can travel freely to about 127 countries. That's incredible. And I'm so, so grateful. I dated someone from Venezuela and it was so eye-opening at my ability to travel versus his. And also the ability to purchase real estate is just something that I'm incredibly grateful for. And so as, as uh, pro us, as I sound on this podcast and, and as I am there, this has come a long, long way from being like a bitter American expat and seeing all the terrible things in my country because they're mm-hmm. there. Um, mm-hmm. I just prefer to look at the good. I respect that. I, I think it's important to to see both sides because I think there are upsides and downsides to everything. I've had this theme on the program before, I'm actually long before I even started doing the program, which is antidotes are always extracted from venom. So you always, the, some of the, your best takeaways, you can only get at them if you're, if you have the grit to deal with the negative side, that's sort of protecting the, the value on the inside. It's yeah. difficult. I'm not good at it, but I think the theory there is sound. And, and, and likewise, I just want people to also understand that, yeah, Canada is a good country, but we have a lot of problems too. It, it, it it's, it almost, it almost feels like it's where there's that fear of like being the one to actually step up and say that we have an issue um, but if no one ever gets over that fear, then the situation is only going to get it worse and the fear will only be compounded. So didn't want to make it totally political, but you know what, if it, if it's relevant to the conversation, which I think it was, then, you know, why not talk about it for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, this has been the Impactful Coaching Podcast, and I think it has been a pretty impactful day. I don't know about you. If I haven't prompted you several times already to email, just do it. So Joseph at impactfulcoachingpodcast.com. Can't wait to hear from you. Uh, Don't hold back. We're all adults here. Let's have a good one.